This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. Good afternoon, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, Lake City, Florida, and the rest of humanity living on the planet Earth who are listening via live streaming at ironsharpensironradio.com. This is Chris Arnzen, your host of Iron Sharpens Iron Radio, wishing you all a happy Friday on this ninth day of August 2019. And I'm always thrilled to have back as a returning guest on this program somebody who I find truly fascinating, informative, articulate, and a true brother in Christ filled with the Holy Spirit on fire for the Lord and His Word. His name is Angus Stewart, and he is pastor of the Covenant Protestant Reformed Church of Ballymena, Northern Ireland. Today we are going to be addressing a very controversial theme. Are all humans created in the image of God a controversial and unique position examined? And it's my honor and privilege to welcome you back to Iron Trump and Zion Radio, Pastor Angus Stewart. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm, uh, I-, I was touched by your opening remarks. It-, it-, it got me right in the heart. But let me just start off with a passage, I think it's a critical passage, that those, especially perhaps, that believe that every human being that is conceived in the womb of a woman is made in the image of God, we have uh, the classic text from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and this is, I'll start with the King James uh, Bible translation of this. Uh, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And then in the New American Standard Bible uh, version of this, which is my favorite translation, Whoever sheds man's blood, by by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And it would seem, logically, uh, that if murder of anyone... Uh, could be a, a reprobate uh, if you are not uh, through legal means executing a murderer for instance uh, under the legal system through lethal injection or however they might do that uh, for, for any human to kill another human being even if that person is vile and evil uh, it would be a violation of God's law uh, to take it upon ourselves in an act of vengeance to, to murder that person, or, of course, anybody else, uh, including the children uh, in the womb of, uh, even, even if you were to say, a, a prostitute or, or any woman who has a child within her womb, we should not murder that child. We should not permit her to have an abortion or approve of her having an abortion because she would be murdering someone made in the image of God. That's the way those on the uh, side of this issue that seems to be in opposition to yours would would interpret that verse. Now, if you could just take it from there and let's see where we go. Sure. Chris, you'll be relieved to know that, that I'm not going to charge you at all with, uh, with contradicting what we'd agreed upon earlier, that since I was out with, with our brother John doing pastoral work and... and uh, so I didn't just have as much time to prepare for night speech as I wanted, that you were you were going to go easy on me. You've just jumped in with the hardest passage, and really I think it's the only passage. There are other two, but and they may well call it. The hardest passage, although I don't think it's that hard, 
the hardest passage and the best arguments against the position which I'm doing. I, I might have preferred, Chris, if, to, to, to have brought this one at the end when I've gotten all my positive arguments out first, but I'll take the chips whatever way they fall. You'll be glad to know. Well, I, I thought it was good to bring it up immediately because otherwise people might be distracted having that verse in their minds throughout the entire two-hour program before you reveal how you would exegete that. But anyway. Uh, Very considerate of you there, Chris. Uh, that, that, over here, that might be accused of spin doctoring. Well, Chris, I, I, with regard to Genesis 9, verse 6, the view... Which, which is, and I freely admit, it is the dominant view. It's the majority position. Mine is a minority position. The dominant position would fit with that text. If whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. But what isn't realized is that, that the view which we hold also fits with that text. And let me explain to you how. We believe that the image of God is, first of all, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's the image of the Father. Then, secondly, Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is called the image of God. Thirdly, and there's no controversy on this either, thirdly, Adam and Eve before the fall, everyone would agree, are in the image of God. And then fourthly, everybody agrees that believers are in the image of God. The regenerate. Now, the contentious one is that unbelievers or the unregenerate are not in the image of God. This passage is explaining why we must not murder. It says, Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. We are not to kill other human beings. This is, this is my argument. We are not to kill other human beings because mankind is different from all animals because we are allowed to kill animals for food or if they endanger us or let's say there's a family pet that needs to be put down. Mankind is different from all the animals and that is revealed by many things including the one that's mentioned here in the image of God made he man. You see the passage when it says in the image of God made he man that's conjuring up a text. That's conjuring up Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. It doesn't say we're not to kill other human beings, for in the image of God is man. It refers to a fact in the past, that Genesis 1. Now, I understand the argument is, well, the image of God, man was made in the image of God, and therefore he still is in the image of God. But the problem with that is that that's, well, that's the point that needs to be proved. The text actually says, not everybody's in the image of God, but God made man in the image of God, which is what Genesis 1, verse uh, 26 and 27 says. Now, let me give you some, some other arguments. Genesis 9, as all of our listeners will agree, comes after eight other chapters. We can, we can certainly agree on that, right? Genesis 1... <laughs> Creation says that man was created in the image of God. I mean man generically, man and woman, Adam and Eve. Then in Genesis 3, we have the fall. When the whole creation was under the curse and infected with vanity, and Adam died spiritually, 
and left himself exposed to eternal death. And then we come to chapter 5. I'll say more about other chapters in a minute, but from now I'm going many of the odd numbers, 1, 3, and then 5. And if you look at the start of chapter 5, verse 1 says, In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Genesis 5, 1 through 2, talks about Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Then the next verse says, Adam lived 130 years, in which time certainly the fall took place, and begat a son in, and then it doesn't say in the likeness of God or in the image of God. Adam begat a son in his own likeness and after his own image and he called him Seth. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 verses 1 and 2 says that Adam was made in the image of God. Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve fell. And Genesis 5 verse 3 says that Adam had a son in his own likeness and after his image. Now to fill in a little bit more of the framework in the early chapters of Genesis, when Genesis 4 talks about fratricide, Cain killing Abel, you know, is Abel, is Cain in the image of God? Before, Genesis 9, verse 6, of course, comes near the tail end of the great narrative about the worldwide flood. And chapters 6, 7, and 8 are talking about the awful sin and misery of the world. Something massively has changed. And then our text says, Whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. You could read it, he's made man, and therefore he is in the image of God, but that's the point that needs to be proved. But within the framework of Genesis, it makes perfectly good sense, and I actually believe better sense, irrespective even of the other case in the Bible, to read it as a reference to the past. And then of this argument too, I want to quote John Owen, by the way, but of this argument too, that when you bring in other passages of Scripture, because Genesis 9 is early in the Bible, when you bring in other passages of the Bible which explain what the image of God is, Colossians 3, verse 10, and Ephesians 4, verse 24, our listeners may want to write those down because they're the classic texts in Reformed theology, in the Reformed creeds, in the history of the Christian church. It just mentions the image of God in Genesis 1, and the phrase occurs in chapter 5 and chapter 9. Of itself, the passage doesn't pour the content into it. The Old Testament gives you basic building blocks. The New Testament enriches the theology. Like, for instance, Genesis 3, you've got the fall. But it's really Romans 5. There are hints, like in Psalm 51, verse 5, and sin did my mother conceive me. But it's really Romans 5 that explains original sin. And it's like it here with the image. The image is mentioned in chapter 1, 5, and 9. But it's the New Testament in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 which defines what the image of God is, what is its nature. And I want to give you John Owen here. John Owen on this passage. John Owen says, and John Owen is probably the most erudite British theologian. Yeah. 1616 to 1683. It's always good to have him on your side. It's right up there. Uh, Owen writes, Quote, they cannot prove that man, in the condition and state of sin, doth retain anything of the image of God. The places mentioned, 
And then he and then he refers to Genesis nine verse six. The places mentioned, I'll not mention the other one now. The places mentioned as, Gen- as Genesis nine verse six testify only that he was made in the image of God at first, but that he doth still retain the image, they intimate not, nor is the inference used in the places taken from what man is, but what he was created. So that, that that's remarkable that John Owen agreed with you on this. Um, now, can I ask a quick question before you move on? I know I'm, I'm not going to be belaboring you with questions, sure. but... Um, how then, logically, can we forbid the killing of a human when the very thing that God's Word bases that prohibition on is that he is made in the image of God? I mean, I'm talking about uh, a person who hates Christ uh, or is in a false religion and uh, you know makes no or gives no evidence that that person is of the elect. How do, how do we... Uh, look at that passage in 9.6 and, and see that there is still a restriction and a prohibition on killing another human? A very good question. I would agree that if everybody were to be in the image of God, that that would be actually a stronger argument against murder than what I'm giving. I don't think it would be the correct argument. I don't think it's required by the text. But the argument against um, murder is, first of all, of course, thou shalt not kill, not thou shalt not murder the, the Sixth Commandment. But Genesis 9, verse 6, is an argument that supports that. And it says that we're not to kill man because man, well, I'll quote it, in the image of God made he man. You can kill a horse that says it's broken its leg or, or swat a fly, and we've had some warm weather here, and we have been doing precisely that. And you can do that in a good good conscience too. But mankind is different because mankind was created in the image of God, made in the image of God, unlike other creatures. And so we're to think now of the six days of creation recorded in Genesis one. And in general there's a there's a, a movement and ascent so that we go from the lower creatures up to man who's the pinnacle of creation. And man is highlighted as the pinnacle, not only that he's the last thing created on the last day, but also that he has fellowship with God, that man was made by the hand of God, God breathed into his nostril, and then God gave a special gift to, to man in the intimacy of marriage. But then this word, that man was made in the image of God, and that sets man apart from all other creatures, all other creatures because man was made as a reflection of the glory of God, like like him, in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, I might add. But the other creatures weren't. So that creation of man in that case indicates that man is different. So it's interesting, too, it says, I believe it's a lawful interest that verse, verse 6, we're not to kill people because God was made in the image of God. Or sorry, man was made in the image of God. But it also talks about capital punishment. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In fact, it's a command. Mm-hmm. It's a command. Oh, yes. Man must be executed for murder. Assuming now that proper trial, the person's been convicted and so forth, everything's been unlawfully. It's a commandment to not just Christians, but actually it's a, it's a sort of a renewal of the creation 
mandates because Noah is here, as it were, another Adam, and I know Christ is the last Adam, but in a sense Noah is like Adam, that he's, the whole human race is now going to descend from him. So this, is a, this applies to all societies and governments. There ought to be the death penalty. And so the fact that man was made in the image of God as opposed to all animals shows the dignity of man. Man once was it, the image of God. Man used to be in it. And man has the capacity of bearing the image of God because knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness are spiritual qualities that can't be predicated, you know, of a squirrel or, or your favorite pooch, no matter how much you like it. <laughs> so uh, you, see, uh, you seem to stop short there. Are you there with us, brother? Oh, I'm still there. Okay. I just realized that it said all that I had to say, and believing that was all I had to say, I just stopped. Okay, well, you, you cited from one of... Uh, the great heroes of the faith that is universally beloved, especially by those who are theologically Reformed, but many who are outside of the Reformed faith still claim Owen as a hero. I've, I've heard a number of our non-Calvinist fundamentalist friends quote from Owen, and, and he seems to be universally viewed as a giant of the faith. Uh, well, uh, I know that you listed a cavalcade of names there that uh, every one of them I love and respect and acknowledge as a hero of the faith. That even includes one of our modern day figures that you mentioned, David Engelsma, who I've had the privilege of interviewing, and he wrote a glowing commendation for this show. But if you could list, uh, or should I say quote some of these other great figures that will add weight to your argument. Obviously, we both believe in sola scriptura, that uh, nothing is absolute proof of anything uh, beside the inerrant God-breathed words of Scripture, but it still does add weight to an argument when greatly uh, beloved and universally beloved figures in the church hold to something. We should, we should, at the very least, take it seriously and not just brush it off because it's not an inerrant statement. Uh, or, or coming from the, the, the lips or pen of a fallible human, it's still, uh, when the person is highly recognized by minds greater than ours, uh, that this individual was or is a voice to be reckoned with, we should take it seriously. Uh, if you could uh, share with us some more of the historic evidence that uh, it is not necessarily out of the mainstream, at least out of the mainstream of historic Christianity, to believe that only the elect of God, those born from above, those who are regenerate, etc., are made in the image of God. Sure, Chris. That was a, a very good explanation you gave of sola scriptura. But sola scriptura, or scripture alone, does not mean that the Bible is the only authority in spiritual things. Sola Scriptura means that the Bible alone is the supreme authority, that it is over and judges everything else. Human creeds, our thoughts, theologians. So the Word of God is the final arbiter, the supreme judge, as the Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 1. And there's a really good, article, a really good book on this that I found uh, superb. Uh, Keith Madison's the shape of sola scriptura, and that it's actually sort of an Anabaptist idea, and he proves that historically too, to say, well, you only need the Bible. The Bible's the supreme, but the authorities in the church, they're lesser authorities, subordinate authorities. 
Then a second point regarding uh, lesser authorities. Below scripture are the creeds. Um, I would like to, going back, this, this helps a little with the Genesis 9 verse 6 text. Here are the canons of Dort, heads 3 and 4, on the corruption of man, his conversion to God, and the manner thereof. Article 1, this explains well the issues in Genesis 9. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. That's man, in the image of God, before the fall. Then it continues. But, revolting from God by the instigation of the devil, and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts, which were the image of God, the aspects of the image of God. And on the contrary, instead of the image of God, he entailed on himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity and perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. Article 2 continues this historical timeline. Creation in the image of God, what that means. Then the fall, we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. Then we move to Genesis 5, in effect, with Article 2. Man, after the fall, begat children in his own likeness. Not the image of God. Remember the first three verses of Genesis 5. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence, all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature, in consequence of a just judgment of God. Now, Chris, I could quote some other um, confessions, some that are actually even clearer than the canons there, and some that make it very clear that so far is the honor, are the unregenerate for being the image of God, that they're actually in the image of Satan. But your question uh, involves quotes from theologians. So to repeat, number one is scripture. It towers above everything else. A subordinate authority is the creed, that's number two. And then individual theologians, they don't have greater authority in the creeds, they have lesser, but they're, they're the third right. Let's start with Martin Luther. And it's worth pointing out that this is the historic position of Lutheranism too. And Chris, I don't know if we have many Lutheran friends who listen to your program, but I hope this warms their heart. Martin Luther says, if these powers, and he's referring to memory, will, mind, etc., if these powers are the image of God, as we're told in the popular and even dominant position today, which was held by, by good men, and I, I used to hold that my view myself, so I can, I can understand that, if these powers are the image of God, it will also follow that Satan is in the image of God. Since he surely has these natural endowments, such as memory, and indeed a very superior intellect and a most determined will to a far higher degree than we have. So Luther's arguing that if, if there is this image of God, this sometimes called wider or broader one, with regard to this broader, wider image of God, Satan has it more, more than you or I. He has it in a high, eminent sense. Here's William Perkins, who taught at Cambridge University. The image of God is nothing else 
for the conformity of man unto God, whereby man is holy, as God is holy. For Paul saith, put on the new man, which after God is created, in God's image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Ephesians 4, verse 24. Well, here's another one. Here's Heinrich Bullinger. And I should add here, I haven't read everything by Heinrich Bullinger. There probably aren't too many people listening to this radio program who have. It's possible with some of these quotes that maybe somewhere else, and I personally think this may be the case with Bollinger, that somewhere else he might think that there is a sense in which man is in the image of God. So I want to throw out as a proviso. But here, here's a really nice thing that Bollinger said. He was a reformer in Zurich after Ulrich Zwingli. Bollinger talks about man's depravity. He says, What else can the blotting or wiping out of this image of God be but original sin? That is, the hatred of God, the ignorance of God, foolishness, distrustfulness, vanity, hypocrisy, etc., etc. And this is a bit I wanted to get to because it impinges on the Genesis 9 verse 6 controversy. This corrupt image and likeness is by propagation derived unto us all, for Adam begat a son in his own similitude and likeness. Genesis 5 verse 3. Let's go back to Perkins. Man, by creation, was made a goodly creature in the blessed image of God. But by Adam's fall, men lost the same, and are now become the deformed children of wrath. And then I could quote Paul Bain, who was the successor of Perkins at the University of Cambridge, and Richard Sibbs, who was also part of this Cambridge set. So here we are in Cambridge, one of the two great university cities in England, in a much better day, these, two, these men are teaching that the image of God, this is being, is not to be conceived in bodily things, as the anthropomorphites imagined, nor yet standeth in the essence and faculties of the soul, as memory, reason, and will, the popular position today, Paul Bain opposes it. For wicked men have these, nor even in dominion and rule, which made man as a little god among the creatures, because this isn't the image of God, it's a consequence of the image of God. Being in the image of God, then Adam ruled over the creation righteously. We're in the image of God, we rule over it righteously, to the extent that we're righteous, and to the extent that we rule over much of it at all, because we don't have much in this world. But then, he continues, the image of God standeth in these divine qualities. The Reformed tradition uses the word virtues in other places, as these divine qualities. And Richard Sibbs says, the image of God must be understood of the image of God in Jesus Christ. Sibbs continues, every man by nature carries the nature of the devil in him till the image of God be stamped on and the image of Satan raised out. Here's Joseph Carroll. He wrote probably the longest commentary on the book of Job that ever will be written not only referring to the past, regarding those outside of our beloved Lord Jesus, they, they are deprived of the image of God. They are stamped with the image of Satan. Here's Ralph Venning, another English Puritan. When God made man, he made him in his own image. So when the devil made man sin, he thereby made man in his own image and likeness. And then he continues... He that runs may read the picture, image, and likeness of the devil and sin. Sinners are as much like the devil as anything. He that sinneth is of the devil, 1 John 3, verse 8. 
Never was child more like the father than a sinner is like the devil. This is from a Dutchman, 18th century, Theodorus van Grove, referring to unbelievers in his audience. This is a sermon, I believe. You lack a true and spiritual knowledge of God and, by reason of sin, are void of God's image. George Smeaton, the Scottish Presbyterian, a favorite theologian of mine, he has a wonderful book on the Holy Spirit and a wonderful book about Christ's atonement as taught by the Lord himself and by the apostles. Smeaton says, The image of God in which man was created was replaced by the entire corruption of man's nature. And here's a southern Presbyterian, R.L. Dabney, another 19th century figure. R.L. Dabney says, The image of God has been lost in the fall, and regained in redemption. Notice the argument. Hence, it could not have consisted in anything absolutely essential to man's essence, because the loss of such an attribute would have destroyed man's nature. The likeness which was lost and restored must consist then in some accidents. And then we have a nice quote from Thomas Peck, another Southern Southern Presbyterian, friend and co-laborer of Dabney. He says, Thomas Peck, Every man comes into the world bearing the image of the devil, filled with malignity against God and consumed with intensest selfishness. This is why we need to evangelize and see people want to Jesus. And here's A.W. Pink, the English Baptist who labored in America and Australia and Scotland. A.W. Pink says, Even among those preachers who desire to be regarded as orthodox, who do not deny the fall as a historical fact, few among them perceive the dire effects and extent thereof. He goes on to say, through the breach of the first covenant, all men have lost the image of God and now bear the image of the devil. John 8, verse 44. And to come back to the Lutheran theme, I could give give other quotes, but we want to quote with approbation, or at least I do, the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church, standing for the teachings of, of that worthy man of God, Martin Luther. This is the Missouri Synod's Catechism, number 106. What was the image of God? The image of God was this. A. Adam and Eve truly knew God as he wishes to be known and were perfectly happy in him. Colossians 3, verse 10. B. They were righteous and holy, doing God's will. Ephesians 4, verse 24. The two classic verses, they keep cropping up. Question 107. Do people still have the image of God? No. This image was lost when our first parents disobeyed God and fell into sin. And then he refers to Genesis 3 in the fall, Genesis 5, verse 3, where Adam begat children in his own likeness. And then he actually refers to Psalm 17, verse 5, only in heaven will it be fully restored. And I have a friend who sent me a nice email today, Jonathan Moore. He earned his doctorate in Cambridge in historical theology. And he mentioned that the English Puritans, John Geary, 1600 to 1649, and Thomas Gattaker, who was a member, incidentally, of the Westminster Assembly, they taught this view of the image of God. Thanks to Jonathan Moore for that. Uh, Hopefully you'll be able to come up with some quotes for me in the future, and I'll put those on our website too. And G.C. Burkauer, a fairly famous and uh, uh, theologian from the Netherlands, uh, who wrote quite a lot of books that are accessible in English, that this was his, his, his view too. Chris, sometimes it's not so good with a, mono, a monologue and uh, a lot of quotes. I hope I haven't 
I hope you're still you're still conscious there. <laughs> oh, I'm very conscious and utterly fascinated. And uh, one question I have for you before we go uh, to the break, our midway break, uh, we have Susan Margaret in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, who asks, I know you are quoting from many great men of God. Was this ever, however, the majority position in the church? And if it was, when approximately did the reverse come, where it seems that even amongst Reformed Christians... That would be a minority view that you're teaching today. And, and Angus, before we go to our listener in England's question, who happens to be a first-time questioner, uh, let's uh, have you answer Susan Margaret in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania's question. She basically was asking, was your view that only the elect or the regenerate are made in the image of God? Uh, she wanted to know, was that... Uh, at ever was that ever a majority view in the church and also when in your knowledge of church history did it become a minority view and how that's an intriguing question by susan um, it raises the question too this isn't the criticism of the question you know it, it can be difficult sometimes to assess you know what exactly do you mean by church at any one period in time and then what did everybody everybody hold here's one good way to approach it there is a superb work by James Dennison. It's called Reformed Confessions of the 16th and 17th Centuries in English Translation. There are four hardback volumes, simply wonderful, with, containing 127 Reformed creeds from 1525 to 1693. So there are 127 creeds, Reformed creeds, were setting aside the Luther Reformation for now. 127 Reformed creeds, not all of them mention the image of God. You wouldn't expect them. Many of them do. Of those 127 that are contained in that book, the text of them, and a friend of mine has, has researched this, only one of them probably teaches that everybody's in the image of God. Several of them define the image of God as knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, and say nothing else about any image of God in any other sense. Many of them say man has lost the image of God, it's utterly defaced, and then some of them say, on top of that, that fallen man is now in the image of Satan. So the Luther tradition was promoting that. Then the Reformed creeds, this is the majority dominant view in the creeds themselves. Then, of course, people... People's beliefs are generally weaker than their creeds. But that's an interesting argument. Here are some quotes. Here's the large Emden Catechism of 1551, Dutch-German provenance. Indisputably, the image of God in which man was created in the beginning, along with all inclinations for good, was lost in him. Again, the image of God in Adam and in all of us was so destroyed by his sin. And then it adds, utterly destroyed both in himself and in all of us. Moving, moving now to Scotland, Scottish Confession of 1560 by the six Johns, including John Knox, by which transgression, commonly called original sin, was the image of God utterly defaced in man. And he and his posterity of nature became enemies of God, slaves to Satan and servants to sin. 
Now, here's the Spanish congregation in London, in England, 1560-1570. At the fall, at the same time, man was marred from the image of God and all the benefits that make him like God. Impressive stuff there. And then I have a friend, a member of our church called Tibor Bognar, who will especially appreciate that. He's a Hungarian. Here are a couple of Hungarian decrees. The documents of the Debrechen Synod of 1567. The image of God was lost by Adam, and it is restored through the image of the infinite God, consubstantial and equal with the Father, i.e. Christ. He restored our lost virtues. That's what the image of God is. He restored the image of God, quote, comma, the lost virtues, it continues. Another Hungarian recreat, the Synod at Cisco, although Tibor will probably say I butchered the Hungarian, quote, the image of God is the virtues that are communicated to men, righteousness, knowledge, wisdom, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. Back in Scotland with Craig's Catechism of 1581, it's one of the clearest. What is the image of God? Ephesians 4:24. perfect uprightness in body and soul. What things did they lose through their fall? The favor and image of God. What succeeded the loss of the favor and image of God? The wrath of sin, the wrath of God and original sin. In what does salvation stand? In the remission of their sin and repairing of God's image. And then this. The battle proceeds, quote, from the two contrary images in mankind. What are these images? The image of God and the image of the serpent. And all these creeds, as I said, are found in the four volumes of James Dennison's work on, on the creeds. So you could say, well, the creeds point us that, the, the, and then you could go back to Luther, and you can go back to the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul wrote about the image of God in his letters to Romans, chapter 8, Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians 15, the second letter to Corinth, 2 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 4, Ephesus, Ephesians 4, verse 24, and Colossians, Colossians 1, 15, and Colossians 3, verse 10. And if you turn to James, James talks about believers. Some people actually contend with that, but it's actually the case. Believers are made after the image of God, James 3, verse 9. So Paul's teaching it, James teaching it, Jesus teaches that you are of your father the devil in John 8. And if they're, if they're the de devil's father, since, since children look like their father, they're in the image of the devil. And then Second Peter 1 verse 4 uses slightly different terminology. It talks about, about believers being fashioned again in after the divine nature. And it certainly was the majority position in, in, in Scripture. But, you know, in the history of the church, I would say for most of the time, it was probably a minority position, but I would say in general too, sadly, that sovereign grace, you know, like the sort of thing that's taught at the Westminster Confession or at, at the Cap in the Synod of Dort, was in a minority too. But when things were really good and when the confessions were written, you've got Luther teaching this and Lutheranism, and you have the Reformed creeds, they're clear on it. They don't get into the speculative, oh, maybe a man's in the image of God in some sense. Whatever sense that is, isn't defined in Scripture. We have no definition. And it's based, I believe, in a wrong interpretation of Genesis 9, 9 verse 6. So that would be my answer to, to Susan. That was an intriguing question, one that has never occurred to me before. And so you did basically confirm historically 
at least you gave great evidence to confirm that it was the majority position, but do you have any ideas of why that seemed to become more considered more of an obscure and against the grain position? Um, sorry, yes, you're quite right. I forgot about that second aspect. The idea that everybody in the image of God is the teaching, apart from, you know, Protestantism, it's actually the teaching of Eastern Orthodoxy. Eastern Orthodoxy uses this broad idea of the image of God. Because they, they, they deny uh, the original sin or total depravity. They believe that man basically is born neutral, a uh, very Pelagian understanding. Even worse in the Church of Rome, and they work it in with their theory of the worship of icons. The Roman Catholic Church also believes that everybody's in the image of God, because it talks about the image and the likeness, which are two ways of saying the same thing, with likeness being more specific. Man loses, man loses uh, one but keeps the other. So he loses the spiritual gifts, the donum super added, but he, but he still retains the image of God in the broader sense. The neo-Orthodox teach everybody's in the image of God. The Jews do too. It's classic doctrine and charismaticism and false ecumenism. The Sassanians teach that everybody's in the image of God. They make it to be dominion. And all the liberal Protestants and civil religion in our day, and I know solid reformed people, and I agree, you know, don't want to go down this road. But civil religion, if it consists, and I mean by civil religion, sort of the religion that passes for a vague veneer, it really consists of two ideas, and they're both universalistic. God loves everybody, and everybody's the image of God. And those two things mutually support each other, you know, ideologically. And, of course, even beyond that, and this is something we should ask your listeners to look out for, whenever people argue for women and women ministers or elders or deacons, Whenever they argue for, well, homosexuality is okay, whenever they argue for same-sex marriage uh, and all those things, that is, people with a little bit of religion about them, the number one argument, I do believe it's the number one argument, the only possibility is the number two argument is, well, they're, they're all in the image of God. They're all in the image of God. And if it isn't the number two, the one argument, the, the number one argument is, well, God loves everybody. God loves everybody, the image of God. Therefore, all these things... All these things follow. And even if Genesis 9, and I'm going to argue to the cow come home and push to it, even if Genesis 9, verse 6 meant the other way, there are 17 passages in the Bible. I know there's a couple of others trying. I'd love to get time to, to address them. They're even more obviously not referring to everybody in the image of God. But even then, you would have one out of 17. And yet, it's really amazing. And in, in, you would think that the, all the Bible's teaching, even if you were to grab that one, was about everybody being in the image of God. One verse out of 17. The overwhelming, this is an argument just for the sake of it, as it were, an abstract argument. The overwhelming teacher is that Jesus, the image of God, were made the image of God by the Holy Spirit in regeneration, were sanctified, were being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And yet, all that we hear about in liberalism, and even most of what we hear about in conservatism, is about this broader sense. And they're missing some wonderful teaching, and I just wish I had more time to look at Romans 8 and Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 to bring out some of the, the glory of this teaching, because it, it warms your soul, and it's really impressive. Well, we, we can have you come back, and you can do part two of this subject. Chris, I, I thought that, that the Lord gave me a spirit of bravery and courage like Joshua and Joshua chapter 1 to come on your program and talk about this once. I, I was fearing being ambushed. <laughs> I stand. Although I think from the history, kind of goofed it up there. The, 
if I come back second time, I, I think I I think I will be ambushed, Chris. So I'm I'm more or less thinking I should move to a different sub. I have no interest in ambushing anybody. I uh, only want the truth to come forth to come. I appreciate forth. that, but maybe maybe some of the people who phone in with questions, Chris. Well, nobody phones in anymore. It's an email uh, show, as you may know, from people emailing in questions. <laughs> Uh, Sorry. Uh, so uh, I, I'll have you think about that. But okay. but I, I can say that uh, it is interesting that most Reformed Christians, in fact, I don't know any Reformed Christian who does not believe that only the regenerate are children of God and everyone else is a child of the devil, even the elect before they are regenerate are considered the children of devil. And, you know, we've come, we've been rescued out of that when we have been adopted by God and uh, give, given the gift of new life. Uh, it seems to be very compatible with the idea that only the elect or the regenerate, I should say, are made in the image of God. Yes. Professor David J. Engels knows one. He's still, still alive and kicking. Yes, I've had him on the program a number of times and enjoy his interviews immensely. Yes, he's a, he's a wonderful man. Chris, I have an article on our website, and it's called The Image of God in Man, colon, A Reformed Reassessment. And I think that's really what we want to do, reassess the material. There are verses that people, including me before I studied the thing, uh, looked at and you thought, well, I mean, is it Genesis 9, verse 6, James 3, verse verse 9, 1 Corinthians 11, and then you look at them with a different, with a different, and you think, you know, I don't think that's actually teaching that at all. James 3, verse 9 is talking about people created in the image of God by regeneration, and therefore, in the image of God now, and people in church, blessing God, and then cursing their made after the image of God church members, because James 4, verse 1 says, whence come all these wars and fightings among you? And it's talking in James 3, verse 1, about people being teachers and how Christians need to use their tongues correctly. And the epistle was written to those of the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And it talks about, Where is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show it forth with a godly life. And then I began to think to myself, Boy, yeah, this isn't what the... Pa- we should have read things into it. And by the way, I have Richard Sibbs, in connection with James 3, verse 9, Richard Sibbs says... When you read of the image of God in the New Testament, including 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, and James 3, verse 9, it must be understood of the image of God in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And then he says the image of God consists of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, Colossians 3, verse 10, and Ephesians 4, verse 24. And 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, which talks about uh, women as being the image and glory, uh, being the glory of their husbands, is talking about women in the church. It's talking about women in the church. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 11, Be ye therefore followers or imitators of me, as I am of Christ. I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, that you keep the ordinances. And then he talks about the roles of men and women. And then he says that the woman is the glory of man. He's talking about women and men in the church worshipping God. And then at the end of that chapter, verse at the end of that section, verse 16, If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And then he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper in the instituted congregation. And we need, I believe, a reformed 
reassessment to go back and look at the things a bit more closely. As I said, that article on the, the reform reassessment, as well as the quotes, quotes from the creeds and quotes from theologians, if you go to cprc.co.uk, the homepage gives a link to, to a, 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 a section called Topical Resources. If you look at Image of God, click on that, you've got audios, articles, and quotes. Chris, I'm trying to fit it all in here. You can see I'm making an effort. I hope that your listeners can cope with A, the speed, and B, English, the way it ought to be spoken. Uh, uh, <laughs> I want to get as much as uh, our comments slash questions from Reverend Stephen Holland from Lancashire, England, who is the pastor of West Houghton Evangelical Church there. I want to get as much of his email into the show as you can respond to. And he, first of all, says, Not fully persuaded of Reverend Stewart's position, yet in summary, as already quoted, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 here we have the very basis of man's being in God's image. That image has been marred and stained, but not totally lost. If so, he is no better or greater than the beasts of the field. Why don't you start with that uh, comment by our listener in England? Um, first of all, uh, my greetings to Reverend Stephen Holland. We've corresponded over the years, and uh, we sent Stephen the Covenant Reform News, a free monthly paper. If anyone gets in contact with us, we can send it to them wherever they are by email each each month. I, I, I'm going to read part of his question again, Chris. He says, with a slightly different emphasis, not fully persuaded of Reverend Stewart's position yet. I, I'm going to emphasize the last word there, Chris. Um, his, his comment on Genesis 1, verse 26, he says, the image has been marred and stained, but not totally lost. Um, the creeds that, that I've already quoted use the word lost, and emphatically uh, lost. And here's Romans 3, about verses 10 and 11. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's righteousness, part of the image of God. There is none that understandeth. Knowledge is part of the, knowledge of the image of God. There is none that seeketh after God, and holiness is seeking after God consecrating ourselves ourselves to him. Total depravity, the tea of tulip, totally lost. Jesus said, you're of your father the devil, and the works of your father ye will do. Now, I know Stephen is, a, is, a, is an orthodox man, so we're just kneeling down some little, um, just sharpening a few points. With regard to, to this, if so, man's no greater than the beast of the field, man was made on day six, the pinnacle of creation. Man is a conscious, rational, moral being with personality. He is dignity. In God we live and move and have our being. The Lord created us. The Lord judges us. We're embraced in his providence. The incarnation, God became man. Man has a soul slash heart slash mind. We believe with Francis Schaeffer in the mannishness of man, a unique individual. God breathed into the nostrils of, of Adam, the breath of life, making him by his own hand from the dust. So we believe all the things about man, all of the things. It's just the content of the image of God, that label, we believe, biblically, it, 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 it's not contained in that label. 
Okay, the second part of uh, our friend from England's commentary is James chapter 3, verse 9. There with... Yeah. Could could we... I've dealt with that one fairly fairly much. This isn't me chickening out, by the way, but could we move to the next one? Because I've I've given the gist of the answer already. Okay. A man referred to as being in the image of the devil is surely in his sinful state and behavior. He has lost the full image of God and knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Westminster Confession of Faith, question four. Uh, let's see. Does man have a knowledge of God? Yes, he does, but not perfectly or full due to the fall. He is a God-conscious being. That is not so with the animals, and that would be revealed in Romans 1, uh, which is my comment, not our guest, not our listeners. Why, if he has lost all of his image... Why, if he has lost all of his image bearing of God? I don't understand the the grammar of that. But anyway, uh, and that will be the last one we have time for. Okay, well, Stephen says man's referred to as being the image of the devil. That's surely his sinful state and activity and behavior. Well, sinful state gets closer. What man, man being the image of the devil, that means what he is. He is in the image of God. He is, or sorry, is the image of the devil. Then he talks about, does man have a knowledge of God? The knowledge that's spoken of in Colossians 3, 10, Ephesians 4, verse 24, the knowledge of God is a saving knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of which Jesus speaks in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, through Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Man has a knowledge of God and that he knows that God is. Romans 1 says he knows that God made him. He knows about sin. He has a conscience. He knows that God's going to judge him. But man suppresses that knowledge in unrighteousness. He holds it down. And in so doing, he shows that he is without excuse. That's, that's the answer to that one. All right, well, we don't have time for any more. And uh, I still want you to come back to address part two of this. So that, I'll leave that up to you, obviously. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. I want to thank uh, our listener in England uh, for sending in those very insightful comments and questions, and please keep listening to Iron Sharpens Iron Radio and contribute uh, more questions to our guests. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that uh, you can find out more about the Covenant Protestant Reformed Church of Ballymena, Northern Ireland, at their website, cprc.co.uk. That's cprc.co.uk. I hope all of our listeners have a safe, blessed, and happy weekend, and especially a God-honoring Lord's Day. And I uh, look forward to hearing from your questions next week for our guests on Iron Sharpens Iron Radio. I want you all to always remember for the rest of your lives that Jesus Christ is a far greater Savior than you are a sinner. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.